And this morning, I have what I believe is a deeply important question for all of you and for all of us, not just to think about, but to hold in our hearts. Is sanctuary in your DNA as a religious community? Do we, do you and I together fundamentally understand ourselves to be a space of peace, of mercy, compassion, and redemption? I'm not asking you what we should do or even what you think we should do. I'm not actually even asking you what you think. I'm asking you who we are. In that vein this morning as we enter into worship, I'd like to share an invocation from the Reverend Kathleen McTeague. She says, you who are brokenhearted, who woke today with the winds of despair whistling through your minds, come in. You who are brave but wounded, limping through life and hurting with every step, come in. You who are fearful, who live with shadows hovering over your shoulders, come in. This place is sanctuary, and it is for you. You who are filled with happiness, whose abundance overflows, come in. You who walk through your world with lightness and grace, who awoke this morning with strength and hope, you who have everything to give, come in. This place is your calling, a riverbank to channel the sweet waters of your life the place where you are called by the world's need. Here we offer in love. Here we receive in gratitude. And here we make a circle from the great gifts of breath, attention, and purpose. Come in. Now in a quick moment, I'm going to invite us all to sing our first hymn, but I, I want to tell you a quick story about this hymn, which is when our heart is in a holy place. When I traveled to Egypt a few years ago with my seminary class, we were, as you can imagine, jet lagged and struck by all the, the differences we were experiencing. And each day, one of us had to prepare worship for our small community as we traveled from place to place. And when it came to be my turn, all I could think of was this song. Because everywhere we went, we were together. We were visiting mosques. We were visiting ancient Christian monasteries. We were exploring the incredible religious history of this land. And we were exploring what it was like to be in a foreign place together with none of the things that made our life recognizable. And all I could think of was this song, and we sang it together. So I invite you to rise and body your spirit 
and let us sing together when our heart is in a holy place. The reading I'd like to share with you this morning is called Temple. And it begins with a quotation from the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 22. You are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Tourists come to admire the temple to take pictures and buy mementos. But it's not on their map. Pilgrims come seeking their separate piece in it, but they can't find it. Eventually, the army arrives ordered to destroy the temple, but it has vanished. It isn't here or there. It isn't in a place. It isn't a thing. It is empty space. It is the love between us. It is not something that is, but something that happens, like gravity that exists only between objects in space as the dwelling place of the divine exists only in the love we hold between us. It is eternal. When we enter that holy space, that holy space among us, which the divine creates, we enter the divine. Nothing can remove us. In the cool of the sanctuary, we listen to the music and we breathe. So it was the year 1532, in the springtime, April 20th, as a matter of fact. Just steps away from the steps leading into Westminster Palace in London, Richard Southwell Esquire drew his sword and attacked Sir Robert Pennington. They fought violently for a few minutes, and at the end of this encounter, Southwell had killed Robert Pennington. Realizing what he had done, he and his five or six retainers, who included some of his brothers, rushed to Westminster Abbey as quickly as their feet would take them and claimed sanctuary near the altar. Everybody was furious. The king, who happened to be a king we know for his propensity to switch wives, King Henry VIII, was especially furious because apparently the fight was about something that was very dear to his heart at that moment, which was his desire to get rid of his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, as quickly as he could so he could marry Mistress Anne Boleyn. Apparently, Sir Robert had not had nice things to say about Mistress Boleyn's virtue, or lack thereof. And Richard Southwell, who was working for her uncle, felt he had to avenge the insult. Henry didn't want anybody talking about this in the taverns, so he actually had his henchman, who was Thomas Cronwell, change the legal record. And while Southwell and his 
friends and brothers were cooling their heels in sanctuary. Cromwell had the opportunity to kind of negotiate things behind the scenes, and everybody else's temper got an opportunity to cool. Southwell admitted his guilt, still in sanctuary, received a royal pardon, and got the chance to pay the huge fine of a thousand pounds to the king. It's good to be king. <laughs> it's really good. Not that I know personally, but anyway. He went on to help Henry dissolve the monasteries, confiscate all of their wealth, and he died at a ripe old age with a tremendous amount of wealth himself. So the moral of the story is not do what the king wants, but rather this. Southwell and his companions didn't have to think twice about what they needed to do. They didn't have to call a lawyer, you know, 1-800-HELP-ME-NOW. They didn't have to call a lawyer and say, how do we save our miserable skins? They knew that every religious community in England practiced sanctuary. The monks and priests at Westminster Abbey didn't need to have a congregational vote or a series of committee meetings to discuss whether or not they would be a sanctuary or offer sanctuary. Not that I have anything against congregational votes or committee meetings. But they didn't have to do that because they knew it was part of who they were. It was not an option. It didn't even occur to them not to be a sanctuary. Now, the usual term for, for a sanctuary stay was roughly 40 days, but it could be many weeks longer, or it could in some instances be, be shorter. But that sense, that certainty about what a religious community was, is not something we have today. But it's something I would love for us to consider as we look into our hearts about who we are and what we represent. The practice of sanctuary as it was being practiced at that time was actually very ancient. So the ancient Hebrews practiced, practiced sanctuary and in fact designated Sanctuary cities, the Romans practiced sanctuary. It was practiced throughout the Middle Ages. The idea was, and this is part of what I am asking us to consider, the idea was that while the law of the land, the laws designated by parliaments and chieftains and human beings were a high authority and continue to be a high authority. That at the same time, there was and perhaps still is a higher authority. There is an authority that is grounded in, for lack of a better word, eternal principles that is perhaps infallible because of those eternal principles. And that sometimes, 
There needs to be a place. There needs to be a practice that allows us to invoke that higher law. Even for someone who has just committed a murder in the heat of the moment. I asked you at the beginning of today's service, I asked you to think about, I asked you to look inside. Are we a community that defines ourselves by the practice of sanctuary? Are we a place of mercy? And by place, I don't simply mean the physical surroundings, as full of love as every brick, cinder block, and cabinet is in this precious building. We are the ones who make sanctuary. We are the ones who make safety, if we choose, if we see ourselves that way. Are we a space of mercy, of redemption? Do we believe that every human being deserves redemption? Now, a lot of times, Unitarian Universalists, we're not too hot to trot about sin, so we don't, by the same token, we don't talk about redemption because we don't talk about sin, and I'm not going to go there today because I do want to leave <laughs> this building alive. <laughs> but we may get there. <laughs> no promises. But the question is a serious one, right? The question is a serious one. In the 19th century, a moral battle raged in this very, very young country, which I know all of you are aware of. It was the moral battle over the vicious and cruel practice of chattel slavery. It was a battle in which huge amounts of resources were expended to prove legally and biblically that those coerced, those human beings coerced into chattel slavery weren't actually full human beings. Our Supreme Court at the time determined this. Not actually human beings, so that means it's okay. It's okay to practice. It was immensely profitable. And you know, I could make the argument today that any wealth and any privilege that any of us here today have owes at least something to that practice. But the debate then, like the debate now, divided families, divided communities, and as you well know, it divided the nation. And I would argue today, I would argue this morning with you that we have not yet as a nation fully finished that argument, finished that battle. Our religious ancestors, the Unitarians and the Universalists, they were not together at that time, often came down on many sides of the issue 
Now, I have to say the universalists, and this is my value judgment, the universalists, I, I, I think, did much better than the Unitarians because in 1843, the universalists declared at their national convention that slavery was wrong. But many Unitarian ministers and many Unitarian congregations affirmed not only the practice of chattel slavery, but laws that enforced it with cruelty, such as the Fugitive Slave Act. We try not to remember them because they don't, doesn't feel good to acknowledge that part, at least for me, that part of our history. But there were, there were courageous souls who did recognize that even though chattel slavery was the law of the land, that there is a higher law and that there was a higher law. So I know I've talked with you before about Reverend Theodore Parker who wrote his sermons with a pistol by his side because he harbored individuals who were fleeing from slavery. Parker was indicted by a federal grand jury. What he did was not without risk. Others, many others, right here in Havada Grace and in my hometown of Kennett Square, courageous white people put their lives on the line to stand with those courageous black people who were not then known, could be known as African Americans in the, in the work of the Underground Railroad. Every covered wagon, every hidden tunnel, every warm meal, every smile of encouragement, every handshake created sanctuary for people who desperately needed it and affirmed, affirmed the identity of those who participated. And you know it was hard, don't you? <laughs> you know it was difficult. Today, I would ask you Will we be abolitionists again? Will we be abolitionists again? I am not wagging my finger at you and saying, we must all be prepared to break the law. I am not saying that at all. But I am saying that we must be fearless in our willingness to do the work of discernment. And at some point down the line, if we as a congregation continue the conversation about what it would look like for us to be a sanctuary congregation, and I hope we do. We will come to the point of making decisions about what we will do or what we will not do. 
Will some of us volunteer as tutors to, for English as a second language? Will some of us pray or stand vigil for those who are being terrorized by today's vicious and cruel anti-immigrant policies? Will some of us travel with undocumented migrants to Baltimore's immigration court to bear witness and to perhaps receive the scrap of paper that says, if I disappear right now, please take care of my children. Their names are, and this is where they live. Will we, at some point, will we consider providing sanctuary here? There are many. I mean, those are just a few of the things that we might decide to do or not decide to do. But we can't decide what to do until we know who we are. Are you with me? Am I making sense? And that's hard. And it's tempting to say, uh uh we're not gonna we're not gonna break the law, so all of these options are off the table. I want us to be fearless and support one another as we have these conversations. Because that's who we are. The principles of our faith call us to be fearless. Dorothea Dix was a, she was one of the most inspiring women in our history. She was a 19th century advocate for the mentally ill. And she was also, I believe she served as a nurse during the Civil War. An extraordinary human being. And one of the things she said was, when there is much to do for us, surely there is something I can do. which I love, because it's going to be perhaps different for all of us. So this is where I want to close. I want to close by reminding us of what our principles and how our principles call us out. Because we are the people who believe in covenant, which means we are the people who believe in our relationships with one another and with the world. We might believe in God or not God or who knows. But how we are with one another, that's crucial. We believe in the inherent, we affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every human being. We affirm a fearless pursuit of truth, no matter where it may take us. Amen, my beloved. Ashe, and blessed be. Our benediction today is Holy Stuff from, by Marilyn Sewell. Father, Mother, God, 
here we are together, rich and poor, educated and not so well educated, gay and straight, Democrats and Republicans, some of us with light skin, some of us with darker, some of us walking, some of, some of us unable to walk, none of us as whole as we would like to be. Help us to know that we, all, we are all your children and we are all holy stuff. May we be a blessing to the life of anyone who enters this sanctuary and may this church be a true sanctuary. And may those who come as strangers in turn help us to grow in wisdom, in compassion, and in joy of living. Amen. <laughs>